Good evening. Welcome uh, to this evening's uh, lecture. Uh, I'm Murray Lowe. I'm an Associate Professor in the Department of Geography and Environment here at the LSE. Uh, and on behalf of the school and the Departments of Anthropology and Geography and Environment in particular, um, uh, I just want to welcome you to tonight's talk uh, by a very distinguished uh, visitor and former colleague uh, here uh, at the school. Uh, David Harvey is Distinguished Professor of Anthropology and Geography at the Graduate Centre of the City University of New York. He's Director of the Centre for Place, Culture and Politics. In his long career, he's had the rare distinction of being a transformative influence on his discipline and of being a geographer whose work strongly communicates across disciplines and wider publics outside the academy. He is, thanks to Wikipedia for this information, the world's most cited geographer. <laughs> and in 2007, the Times Higher Education Supplement said he was the 18th most cited intellectual of all time in the humanities and social sciences. <laughs> I don't know if Plato, Kant, Marx and Freud were eligible for this ranking, but even if not, uh, this is a somewhat remarkable status in the contemporary intellectual universe. He's taught at many institutions, from the University of Bristol to Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Oxford University, Johns Hopkins again, and has been in New York since 2001. Around the turn of this century, he was a Miliband Fellow here at the LSE in Geography and environment. David was awarded his PhD from Cambridge in 1961 at the start of a time of great ferment in geography, with the arrival of an idea of constructing a scientific analysis of the spatial organization of the world, human and natural, bolstered by an array of models from economics, psychology, and other disciplines, and a battery of statistical and other quantitative methodologies. His first book, Explanation in Geography, in 1969, did much to synthesize and communicate many of the shiny new ideas of the 1960s, famously issuing a call for geography to become a theoretical discipline. Of course, he didn't rest there, and with his 1973 Social Justice and the City, he not only synthesized but transformed geography galvanizing dissatisfaction with the geographical status quo in a context of social conflict and global crisis, with the development of a Marxist perspective on urban inequalities and injustices. In this book, which starts by evaluating liberal positions associated with the philosopher John Rawls and welfare economics, you can get a sense of his mind moving very fast, in the direction of something entirely new. There were other writers in geography and related disciplines in the 1970s who made key contributions, but Social Justice and the City was the key text marking the emergence of a more social theoretic discipline and, crucially, a more socially critical one too. This, largely, at least in human geography, remains the case. 
David's written a lot since Social Justice and the City, and as we all want to know what he has to say this evening, I can't elaborate on even a fraction of it. Perhaps his magnum opus, a reconstruction and extension of Marx's arguments in Capital, The Limits to Capital, appeared in 1982. It's a remarkably complex book that nonetheless manages to rigorously develop and examine difficult ideas in a clear and persuasive fashion. The theorization of historical geographical materialism elaborated here was subsequently deployed in key articles on geopolitics and urban politics, and his theorization of crisis and rent have remained central to his thinking and writing in recent years. Indeed, as many of you will know, his website features a plethora of material, including lectures, elaborating on various dimensions of Marx's work, and he's recently published a two-volume companion to Marx's Capital. Other books have contextualised postmodern ideas, art and architecture in what was seen as an emerging era of flexible accumulation, developed a Marxian take on issues concerning nature and environmental justice, elaborated on the transformation of 19th century Paris, given an incisive account of geopolitics, in the time of a resurgent American imperialism under the Bush administration and provided a highly influential and concisely presented account of the development of contemporary neoliberalism. That's only to mention a few things uh, that deserve to be mentioned. When he was last here talking, I recall it was in connection with his 2012 book, Rebel Cities, which brought together an extended material on the current crisis and activist and other responses to it. His writing has been strongly associated with the US and global right to the city movement, and he's helped inspire much recent activism in many parts of the world. Now, I have to remind you, before we start, that events are recorded, and we hope, I'm told to say we hope, to make a podcast available online. It is also being streamed live, if that's working, uh, to a large audience outside the hall. So please, if you haven't done so already, put your mobile phones uh, on silent. And if you're into tweeting, I'm supposed to point out to you that the Twitter hashtag is hashtag LSE capitalism, which I think <laughs> all of you will agree is an excellent uh, hashtag for our event. <laughs> So there's a book signing afterwards for about half an hour uh, or a little more uh, that I'm supposed to point out to you, and I'll try and remind you uh, uh, at the end so you can pick up your own autographed copy uh, of uh, his new book, uh, 17 Contradictions of Capitalism, and uh, 17 Contradictions in the End of Capitalism is, I believe, the title uh, uh, of the book. Uh, So without more ado, I hand you over to uh, David, who'll speak for about 50 minutes, uh, he reckons, and then we'll have some time for questions and answers. Okay. Well, thanks. It's uh, always good to be here, and... uh, uh, this is an opportunity, of course, to talk about the new book. Um, and uh, the central idea behind it, uh, which was to try to explain uh, 
where crises come from and in a funny kind of way to uh, extend and deepen some of the argument that I'd made in The Enigma of Capital in which I argued that capital never solves its crisis problems, it simply moves them around. And the question is, well, how does it move them around and why does it move them around? And uh, what are the mechanisms? And in thinking about that, uh, I was, of course, drawn to Marx's argument that uh, crises are always uh, reflections or manifestations of the underlying contradictions of capitalism. So I thought I'd uh, take a look uh, harder at what those contradictions might be. Uh, In the full recognition, and I include myself in this criticism, that uh, we Marxists are very, uh, I think, uh, prone uh, to take any situation we don't understand and just say, ah, it's a contradiction. Uh, But by unraveling the contradictions, it seemed to me that uh, maybe I could train myself to be a bit sharper in my use of that term and try to understand. So I did what I usually do, which is to sort of troll my way back through the texts of Marx. And uh, uh, at the time I was thinking about this, I was also finishing up the uh, written version of the companion to volume two of Capital, which had, I think, uh, a singular impact upon my thinking about uh, this this project, and in fact, to some degree, uh, inspired it. Uh, In doing this, uh, it readily became apparent that actually there are contradictions all over the place, and therefore I thought to myself I would try to systematize them a little bit, which... uh, I finally did by boiling down a rather more complicated morass of kind of statements about contradictions into 17. Uh, The great thing I liked about the number 17 is it's a a prime number, and for some reason or other, I think there's a magic in prime numbers, so I like that. Uh, So if you want to know why 17, it's because I like prime numbers. Uh, there always has to be some mysticism in anything you construct and it's fun to do it that way but the 17 um, actually seemed to me to be a kind of good idea to try to, try to structure them so I structured them into, into seven foundational contradictions and seven moving or transformative constantly shifting contradictions and three dangerous ones, and then it suddenly occurred to me there's another bunch of prime numbers there. So suddenly you have a whole structure of prime numbers. So uh, this is the mystical side of the, of the whole exercise. But in, in so doing, what I, I learned a great deal about uh, the way in which the contradictions interact and intersect with each other, and the degree to which Uh, Through the analysis of contradictions, you could actually come up with what struck me as perhaps the most fecund part of the exercise, which is uh, to start to see uh, the lineaments of a not so much a a political project, but a framing of what a political alternative to capital might look like. And that, to me, uh, was, I think, uh, a rather profound uh, 
uh, understanding and one that I wanted to uh, emphasize in, in the written version. In, in this, I think, um, the, the connection between, the, if you like, the, uh, the analysis and the attempt to frame a political alternative, that, that connectivity uh, arose out of the, the way in which the contradictions were actually enmeshed with, e- with each other. And I hope to give you a brief e- example of, of how that actually, actually works. For example, uh, the first contradiction I looked at is that between use and exchange value, which is on page one of Marx's Capital, so it's always a good place to start. I'd always been particularly fond of this uh, contradiction for a very, very particular reason, which is that when I started reading Marx with a small group of graduate students in Johns Hopkins way back in about 1970, at that time I was uh, actually involved in a a research project on what to do about uh, housing in a city that had gone up in flames in, in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King, and how to understand the dilemmas of housing provision in a highly ghettoized, racially discriminatory structure of uh, housing uh, uh, provision. Uh, In the process uh, of participating in this research, I found myself actually uh, allocated the task of writing the report, and that came about for a very simple reason, everybody looked around and says, who in the hell knows how to write around here, well you're a Brit, you should know how to do it, so why don't you do it? So I ended up being mandated to write the final report on housing uh, for the city. In the process, we had been talking all the time to, to bankers and, fin- and, de- and development uh, people. We'd been talking to landlords. We'd been talking to federal officials. We'd been talking to city officials. We'd been talking to all kinds of people, real estate agents and the like. And we had a conference about uh, th- uh, what our findings were in which they were all sitting around the table and we'd all sent them copies of the report. And I decided that the best way to frame this report was around the concepts of use and exchange value because I just read you know, page one of volume one of Capital. <laughs> and I thought to myself, this conceptual apparatus makes a lot of sense. Uh, uh, you know, there's a use value of housing. Clearly, a large segment of the population of Baltimore is not getting adequate access to you know, use value of, of housing. Uh, there's an exchange value structure, and clearly something is wrong with the exchange value structure that it doesn't deliver the use values that really need to be delivered to that population. So let's look at this relationship between use value and exchange value in housing. And I got into that a little bit and formulated the argument that way. I was a little nervous about presenting this report because I thought somebody would say, oh, my God, this is simply page one of volume one of Capital. <laughs> Uh, but, of course, nobody recognized it because nobody in the room had ever read. But, you know. uh, they all thought it was a terrific idea. <laughs> they thought it was fantastic. They said, this is a great idea, you know. And then, where did you get this from? I said, I didn't dare tell them. And, and, and so, it, so, so, so it went. And, 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 you know, by then, I was not a convinced Marxist by any means, but this gave me great confidence in Marx's analysis, so I thought I'd better turn to page two. <laughs> 
and, and this, is how, this is how my knowledge of Marx actually unfolded, was very much in dialogue with experiences of this, uh, of, of, of this kind. I mean, the, the other story was a bit further down the line. I, by then I'd read Engels, and, and, and it was about four years later we had another conference on the housing question, and uh, I kind of said, look, uh, the problem is that we've faced this, problem, this issue of a lack of provision of housing to low-income populations, and particularly uh, black marginalized populations, and we're not really facing up to the fact that most of the solutions we suggest simply move the problem around. This, of course, comes from Engels' uh, 1872 essay on the housing question, where he says the bourgeoisie only has one solution to its housing problems. It moves them around, which, of course, then carries over to what I said in The Enigma of Capital. The bourgeoisie only has one solution to its crisis problems. It moves them around. So this idea came up, and, and uh, you know, and everybody kind of, again, thought this was a good idea, apart from some of the political people in the audience, uh, particularly those... Uh, on the city council, who by then had figured out I was a bit of a lefty and I wasn't to be trusted. So I was getting attacked violently by, by them for kind of, oh, well, you know, you're just a socialist. And I, I was actually getting red-baited. But I was actually protected by the vice chairman of the Chase Manhattan Bank for Real Estate uh, Management in New York City, who kind of said, this is a key insight. This is fantastic. I mean, this is really exactly what happened to us in New York City. We took on this kind of neighborhood and we provided finance for it and did all these wonderful things we had to do. And the neighborhood improved, but by the end of the day, the same people were not living there. So this moving around of the problem is exactly the nature of the issue. So I was actually found myself defended by the banker. And, and I was kind of about the only time I've actually been defended by a banker, but it was very good. So afterwards, he says to me, you know, such a key idea. Have you written it up? I said, no, I hadn't really written it up. He said, well, where did I get it from? I thought, well, by this time, I might as well be honest. I said, well, it comes from Engels. And he says, well, does he work at the Brookings Institution? <laughs> so I said, no, 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 no. By, by the time when I said, well, this is, uh, this is Marx's mate, he said, oh, my God. No, I was, <laughs> but... But the thing is, the thing is that actually there's a, there's a lot in Marx's political economy that has that quality to it, if you can, you know, get past all the gobbledygook representations of it about, you know, this and that. And, and a lot of common sense, uh, or what Gramsci would call good sense, comes out of understanding the political economy. So this particular contradiction of use value and exchange value, uh, of course, played a very critical role in the crisis of 2007-2008 uh, because that crisis originated in housing, where clearly <clears throat> the use value system uh, was actually uh, captive to an exchange value structure that was being increasingly elaborated upon and, and finessed in all sorts of ways. Uh, the exchange value system had moved from simply a commodity of housing being provided to housing as a form of saving to housing as a speculative instrument. All of this had gone on over the years, and, and so suddenly we find the exchange value system blows up, and something like you know, somewhere between four and six million people in the United States find themselves deprived of the, of the use value. In other words, it was exactly the same story of the sort of, that I had encountered in Baltimore in 1970. And so the use value exchange value structure is is, is incredibly uh, interesting way to look at this. And when you ask the political question, 
Do you want to live in a society which just simply uh, guarantees the, the provision of use values, of decent housing and a decent living environment to every human being on planet Earth? Is that the kind of society you want to live in? Or do you want to live in a society that says that your access to housing is, has to be mediated through this exchange value structure through which all kinds of people from, you know, bankers and, and real estate agents and mortgage financiers and lawyers and so on are absolutely ripping you off left, right and centre uh, to make absolutely sure that they get their uh, pound of flesh before you can get your house. Now, which would you rather do? And obviously the answer would be, to most people, the common sense thing is to say, well, let's live in a society that provides use values. You know? and, and if the exchange value system is not really working adequately, then let's get rid of it or change it or do something with it. You know, which is which, which is which is going to make it work much, much, much better. And this is the political point that comes out of the contradictions. That by thinking of it this way, you immediately find find yourself saying, "Let's live in a world which is providing use values to people. Let's live in a world that does it on an equitable kind of basis." And then you look at what's happened over the last 40 years, and we find more and more things have become actually commodified to the point where you have to go through the exchange value system uh, to get the use value. Higher education, health care, you know, you name it, you know, pollution rights, you know, I mean, everything has to go through the exchange value system. And we are told again and again and again that this is the most efficient, effective and, and dynamic way in which uh, society can work. But it's a foundational contradiction and you see immediately that there are defects in it and that therefore it should be the centre of critique. But you try critiquing it. It's very, very difficult. I mean, around that table, I, when I recall, everybody's saying this is a sensible way to look at things. But when you lay it out there as a sensible way to look at things and start to ask questions about it and kind of say, well, maybe we can do without the exchange value system here. Maybe we can treat housing as a human right. Maybe we can treat housing provision as something that should be orchestrated and organized on a collective associational basis. And maybe there are techniques and ways of doing it. And you find, actually, it's very difficult to make that argument, except when people sit back and look at it, they see the common sense of what you're, what you're saying. So politically, it made a lot, a lot of sense. But then the exchange value, use value system, it doesn't exist on its own. There's an interesting kind of problem here. Exchange value. In order for exchange value to work, you need actually a measure of exchange value. Well, the measure of exchange value that we always use is money. But what does money represent? Money, in Marx's view, represents social labor. The social labor which is done by certain people in society for other people in society, which is mediated through the market system. And there's a complicated relationship between money and that which it represents. Social labor is, is, is actually immaterial because it's a social relation. Social relations are immaterial but objective. And Marx uses that to talk about value as something immaterial and objective. This is a very, very important thing. You know, it's on page seven or eight or something like that of, the, of volume one of Capital, where he talks about it in these terms. But Marx is often read as a natural sort of materialist, i.e., you can't have something that's immaterial, which is foundational. But actually, Marx's materialism is historical materialism. It's not, it's not scientific materialism in the sense of, of, of natural materialism. It's, it's, it's historical materialism. And the history of it is the social relation. And the crucial thing is the social relation. And that is not measurable directly. 
It needs a representation, and its representation is in the money form. Now, social labor is represented by a thing, and the commodity it's represented by is initially, of course, was gold and silver, which gave physical material form to something that was a social relation. But in so doing, it also lied about that social relation. And it also set up a situation where all kinds of other things could happen, which I'll mention in, in, in a minute. And, you know, one of the nice things coming from geography is you end up with some nice metaphors. I mean, money is like map. It does a very good job of representing some things, but it lies like hell about all kinds of other things. And, you know, we geographers know that and, and, and how to lie with maps. Well, how to lie about the social relation through money then becomes absolutely crucial. And, of course, we've seen lots of lying about that social relation through money over the last few years for one other very specific reason. And the reason is this, that at some point or other, gold and silver were not very effective as a means of circulation. So you had to actually set up representations of gold and silver, which is the fiat monies and the bits of paper and the coins and all those kinds of things. So you end up with a weird thing, that, that the materiality of the social, social relation is represented by, by gold and silver, and then you represent something of the representation. But in the 1970s, we suddenly gave up on gold and silver. We lost the material link. So actually, what happened was the representation became, as it were, free from any kind of material base. And then the question arose, well, what is going to control this, this, this representation called money in relationship to social labor? And the answer was central bank policy. Now, what we saw in the 1970s, of course, was strong inflation, because we cut the thing, and so suddenly people start printing money, and so suddenly there's inflation. And everybody then gets nervous about inflation. At that point, Volcker and the Central Federal Reserve joined with the German Bundesbank and kind of said, basically, we don't want... We're scared of inflation. Inflation, inflation, inflation. So they became absolutely kind of almost fetishly involved in making absolutely sure we didn't have inflation. So you get a European Central Bank that's ultimately set up when it's charter is avoid inflation. It says nothing about employment or anything else. And there's this fascinating thing come out about the Federal Reserve in, in New York City, that the Federal Reserve discussing the crisis just before Lehman Brothers went bankrupt had a, had a, a and the minutes of the meeting show that, and I've forgotten the figures, but it goes something like this, that it, during the conversation, the question of inflation was mentioned something like 180 or 20, 250 times. Unemployment was mentioned 16 times, and the crisis was mentioned five times. And this is just before the whole thing is going to blow up. This is, if you like, the fetish, the Marxist fetish, <laughs> really taking over, and the fetish form itself uh, becomes, as it were, the centre. So the monetary system becomes absolutely crucial uh, underpinning what exchange value is about. And here there's, a, there's a, therefore a link. It's like the use value, exchange value thing connects to the, the money versus social labor question. So those two contradictions are not independent of each other. They're dependent of each other. And we're now faced, I think, with one of the big, big issues which this poses, which is what is money actually doing and what, what kind of money should we be actually trying to design which is going to actually facilitate exchange as opposed to being a vehicle for speculative activity and all the rest of it? What, what kinds of things can we, can, we, can we do? And what can we do about the way in which money can actually be used 
for certain purposes which <coughs> are actually highly destructive. Now I'll mention one of those in a minute. So this is, if you like, the second contradiction which is connected to the first. The third contradiction is you can't have exchange value and you can't have money without having private property. And you can't have private property without having a legal system which guarantees that private property, which means you can't have private property without the state. And so you get this contradiction between the private property and the state, which then becomes absolutely crucial around the monetary form. And what we see, is, in a sense, is the monetary form also being integrated into this other kind of question of state versus private property. But we can go one other step further than that. Private property is about private wealth. What money allows is social wealth to be actually appropriated by private persons. And on that basis, you get the class distinction. Because if, if social wealth could not be appropriated by private persons, you would not have a capitalist class. So what you then get is the class relation between capital and labor. So what I'm talking about here is the way in which these contradictions all sort of integrated with each other and, and actually sort of pile on top of each other to bring you a, an understanding of the dynamics of how capitalism works and recognition that if you want to get rid of the exchange value system, as I wanted to do in the housing question, you can't do it without saying something about money and monetary speculation and all that's going on with the money form. And you can't deal with those two without actually also dealing with private property and the state. And you can't deal with that without dealing with the class relation between capital and the appropriation of, pri of social wealth by private persons. So this is what Marx calls a totality of intersections. And it looks uh, pretty intimidating when you start to push all of these things together. And it, in a sense, it is intimidating, but ex except that you start to see some ways in which these interactions uh, can, can be understood, uh, or the interactions between the different contradictions can be understood. And this, for me, was one of the, the, the if you like, the big findings of, uh, of, of what, I was, what I was looking at. Because it's pretty clear that one contradiction can, in fact, counter another. And so you get a balance, if you like, within a, within a, within a capitalist system between these different contradictions. And, and one counteracts the other. That is, the speculative system gets out of, my, out of way in, in the housing sector, but the state can step in and do something in relationship to it. In other words, the state-private private property contradiction can get mobilized in such a way as to deal with some of the cruder issues that go wrong in the exchange value, use value thing. So that you can, you can see a compensation there going on in which some stability can be structured within the totality of what capital is about. Some, some, some relative stability can be set up, even though it's very, very dynamic, in which crises don't really form. Crises begin to form, the contradictions start to get out of hand, but they can be managed. And this is the crucial thing about contradictions. We're not talking about a situation where they always create crises. No, a lot of the time, crises uh, and contradictions are, are managed and managed effectively so that they do not become what Marx calls absolute contradictions and, and become the center of crisis formation. In other words, there was no reason why 
the crisis between use value and exchange value in housing that broke out in 2007, 2008 had to happen that way. It was a consequence of many mismoves in the state-private property relation, the monetary system, and the like, which actually contributed to, the, to, to it. And this then leads, if you like, into two possibilities. One, the contradictions counteract and control each other to the point to give relative stability, or they become contagious. And when they become contagious, then something that's going wrong in the state and private property can actually affect, uh, affect uh, some other, you know, the, 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 the monetary system can affect the exchange value, use value system. So that what you find, then find is the pattern of contradiction starts to multiply and therefore it becomes contagious and explosive. And this seemed to me to be one of the crucial uh, elements within, within uh, the analysis. And... and this, this, I think, was, was, was to me one of the findings that followed on throughout the whole analysis that I was, uh, was unfolding, along with, of course, a recognition that uh, some of these contradictions are so, so, so macro that you really need to think about, uh, the, if you like, the, the, again, the, who is managing the totality of the system and in what, in what ways are they managing it. Uh, and to me, this, one of the crucial elements here was uh, the, the contradiction between production and realization. And this gets you into a field that uh, many uh, Marxists like to talk about, which is, well, do crises arrive, arise out of production or do they arise because of realization? And I sometimes see sort of Marxist crisis theorists uh, defined as either production-based, i.e. they're into falling rates of profit and things like that, or they're into the realization crises. And I find myself dis described as somebody who's into the realization crises. In fact, I'm not. Uh, I, what I'm into is what Marx talked about in the Grundrisse in saying you cannot understand capital without understanding the relationship between production and realization. In other words, capital is about what he called uh, the contradictory unity between production and realization. So it's neither production or realization. It's the relationship between production and realization, which is significant. But this came to me in a big way in the following, for the following reason. That when I was working on the volume two companion, it became clear to me, uh, a number of things became clear to me. First uh, was... The, the, the truth of the fact that this is probably one of the most boring books ever written. <laughs> so it was very difficult to try and write about it in an entertaining way, and I, I did my best, but it wasn't good enough. But volume two deals with realization, uh, and it's all about realization. Volume one is all about production. Volume one is about the production of surplus value and how surplus value gets produced and reproduced and the class relations which are connected to it and all of the consequences that flow. And Marx's argument runs that if, it, if the world is like this, then we will get that and that and that and that and that. And, of course, when we get to the general law of capital accumulation, Marx argues, well, if the world is constructed in this way that the classical political economists wanted to construct it, then you would get uh, an increasing uh, polarization of wealth. You would get immense wealth at one pole and immense misery and degradation and, uh, uh, and, and despair at the other pole, which is that on the part of the working class. So you get the thesis coming out of volume one that the increasing immiseration of the working class is the end product of what the, the general law of capital accumulation defines. But that, but that conclusion in volume one is entirely contingent. 
is contingent on the idea that there is no problem in realization, in the world of realization. That all commodities can be traded at their value, that there is no problem in the market. The market is always there. You can always sell your commodity at its value, no, dif no difficulty. Furthermore, it's also predicated on the assumption that the way in which the surplus is divided up between profit of enterprise and between interest and between rents and taxes and profit on merchants' capital, that those distributional arrangements have no impact whatsoever. Uh, on the story that's being told. So volume one is, is a simple story which is told brilliantly and, and dialectically and the argument is impeccable, but it's based upon these assumptions. Volume two actually questions all those assumptions and starts to talk about you know, what happens uh, when we start to actually worry about uh, realization. And in volume two what you find is a completely different uh, scenario. And the scenario says one of the biggest contradictions there is in capitalism is the fact that capitalists are constantly trying to depress the, the wage rates of those they employ. And in depressing the wage rates, uh, they actually undermine their market. And if they undermine their market too far, you'll get a crisis which arises out of realization. And this was, the, you know, this is what the volume two argument. But again, it's a contingent argument because it's all founded on keeping constant all those things which are variable in volume one and, and allowing then all those things which are held constant in volume one to vary in volume two. Now, the so the relationship between volume one and volume two became absolutely critical to trying to understand what capital is about. And, 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 and the trouble is that, you know, volume two is such a boring book that many, many people I know never read it. Or if they read it, they read it once and give up and kind of say, oh, God, it's so boring, I'm not going to... Yeah, let's get back to all that purple passages and prose in volume one. It's great stuff to read. And besides, you know, there's Shakespeare's in there and, you know, and Cervantes and all this kind of other people. And none of that is in volume, volume two. But this, is, this leads to a profound misreading of what it was that Marx was doing because it is the contradictory unity between volume one and volume two that defines what capital is about. And let me give you a very simple and silly example, really, about, about how, that, how that works. That if you think you're in real difficulty in terms of a crisis of a certain sort, which has, is connected to the situation in volume two, uh, then, then, then what do you do with this, this, this problem of lack of working class demand? Well, you've got to empower the working class. You've got to actually support unionization. Uh, in fact, you've got to theorize the economy in a certain way that Keynes makes a lot of sense. So volume two produces something which is, you know, would say that if you want to manage capitalism from the, that perspective, then volume, you know, you would, you would be a Keynesian and you would start to sort of debt finance things and do all of the things that were essentially done with, cap, with, with progressive capitalism after World War II. In other words, World War II was, was essentially dominated by demand management and dominated by Keynesian thinking. And, of course, it was pretty successful in terms of generating growth. The thing it was not successful at doing was disciplining the working class. In fact, it was empowering the working class. So that by the time you get to the end of the 1960s throughout Europe and North America, the working class is getting incredibly powerful. And as it gets powerful, it can't, starts to make demands and starts to sort of go on strike and all those kinds of things. And you have all the stuff going on in Italy and you get social democratic parties and communist parties beginning to sort of raise. And of course, what happens is there's a crisis of the production of surplus value. In other words, 
You're in equilibrium according to what you should do in terms of volume one, but you're in disequilibrium in terms of volume one. Uh, sorry, you're in, you're in equilibrium with what you should do in volume two, but you're in disequilibrium with what's going on in volume one. And the production of surplus value is falling off, and there's a crisis, a macro crisis. It was the 1970s. So what do you do in the 1970s? You ditch Keynes, and you go to a supply-side analysis and a monetarist analysis. In other words, you change your economic theory, and you go to not demand, but supply-side thinking. And what is the main thing you want to to discipline on the supply-side? Wages. So what do you do? You attack working-class wages and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, that's the neoliberalism world. In other words, what you do is you start to actually work extremely well uh, in terms of the dynamics uh, as, a, as suggested in Volume 1. And guess what? Of course, as Piketty and all these other people have been showing, social inequality just spirals, as it, we would predict from Volume 1. Social inequality gets and the rich become richer, and we get the billionaires club, and we get, you know, we get the kind of global plutocracy that we've essentially built uh, since, since the 1970s. That is entirely predictable in terms of the volume one analysis because you're no longer concerned about the volume two except the volume two stuff is going to get you in the end. And the volume two stuff starts to get you because where's the market? Well, the market isn't there, so we've got to create the market. So how do we create it? Well, we start to use the financing and all this kind of stuff. And, and oh, well, there's not enough market there for the, for the, in the housing. So what about setting up subprime uh, financing for the market? You know, all those kinds of things. So you start to do these, these things, which are somehow rather going to bring you back into some sort of equilibrium result big crisis, 2007-2008. In other words, in a way, what we've, what, we've, what we've got are, when we look at the unity, the, the contradictory unity between production and realization, is you've got a framework for thinking about capitalist history, which works you know, very crudely, but, but reasonably well in explaining why we shifted from a Keynesian sort of demand side to a, a sort of monetarist supply side analysis in the 1970s and the, what the consequences have been. And now, of course, we find ourselves in a world where, you know, we're dealing austerity, so it's still supply-side stuff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, apart from China, Turkey, and various other places that are doing the sort of demand-side kind of uh, explosion. Keynesian kind of, so the world is divided in this sort of way. So this dialectical relation between production and realization, which is founded on volumes one and volumes two of capital, in intersection with each other and in relationship to each other, is, I think, very insightful in terms of what it is we should actually be going for. And this explains something to me which I was kind of really concerned about. I I mean, the thing that struck me about the 1930s and my knowledge of the 1930s was new theory, new thinking came out of a crisis situation. In the 1970s, well, I didn't like it. New theory and new things came out of the 1970s, which is a sort of neoliberal argument. Why is there nothing new this time? The answer is because there's nowhere to go. You're blocked. You either go back into, you know, supply-side stuff or deepen the supply-side stuff, which, of course, is what austerity politics is all about, or you go into the demand-side uh, and do what China and, 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 and Turkey is doing. That's about the only, those are the, the two options. So there's no option of a third way unless, unless you are prepared to go outside of capitalism entirely. Well, you try thinking that one through. And you try suggesting that to some bankers. You try sitting around a table with a bourgeoisie and say, maybe we should go outside of capitalism altogether. 
see what you get. I mean, actually, there are some people in there who kind of think it might not be a bad idea. But the point is that we are blocked right now. Now, what are we blocked around? And this then comes back to other kind of questions which uh, come up later in, in the analysis. And the three contradictions at the end, which to me are absolutely most dangerous to the future of capitalism right now, which are very different from those which existed in Marx's time, which is one of the reasons why I think we had to answer this question of what's new about capitalism today versus what is, what is you know, foundational and is always there in a capitalist society. What's new about, uh, what's, what's, what's particular to our time are, are, are certain contradictions. The one which I'm most emphatic about is the one which is about perpetual growth, exponential growth. <clears throat> exponential growth is kind of interesting uh, because it has this character that you don't notice it's growing very much until it starts to take off and there's an inflection point and then it kind of whoosh goes up like this. It's an exponential and capital has grown at an exponential rate of about 2.2% per year, if you believe Angus Madison's calculations. Other people have different calculations, but they all show it's compounding, and it's compounding growth. Now, compound growth, when capital was really about what was happening in Manchester or uh, you know, Birmingham and a few other places in the 1820s, one thing. Compound growth right now. When you look at what's been happening around the world over the last 20 or 30 years, look at what's happened in China, look at what's happened in you know, uh, India, look at what's happened in Latin America, everywhere else. And I think about this in terms of urbanization, because one of the big things, one of my subtexts in all of this is you can only explain urbanization as a way of actually facilitating a lot of this compound growth. But look at the compounding of urbanization, say, in Latin America, or go, go to Istanbul, go to Turkey or something like that, and look at urbanization right now. It's, it's awesome what is happening. I mean, the amount of it is going on. And I'm kind of saying, okay, this is compounding growth right now. What would compounding growth look like in 30 years' time? What kind of urbanization would we have in 30 years' time if all of those buildings you see in sort of a Turkish cities and, 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 and uh, what you see in, in Latin America, what would happen? What, 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 what kind of world would we be looking at? We're talking about compounding growth on everything that's going on in, in you know, North America and Europe, but also now what's going on in China, what's going on even in part much of the Middle East and what's going on. And, 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 the, and the compounding of it is, is, is absolutely terrifying in its implications for what, what the world will look like in, in, in 30 years' time. And we've actually got, it seems to me, a, a crisis moment where compounding growth cannot continue. Now, capital is always about growth. It has to grow because it's always about producing surplus value, and surplus value is always about extra. It's always about more. Capital is always about more. It cannot be sustained unless there is more. And there's more of what? Well, more this, more that. Well, one of the things that's been happening is more money. Now, money can be accumulated without limit, which is why it was very good to get rid of the, the, the gold and the silver, because you got rid of the, 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 the limiting factor on it. But now you're kind of adding trillions to the money supply. You're then kind of, you said, without limit. But what, is, what does that mean? And where does it go in terms of what, what people's lifestyles are about? What does it mean in terms of all sorts of things which then become absolutely critical? One of the things I like to dwell upon, and I talk to this about my, my cultural colleagues, is really about the rapid turnover time in the world of consumption. 
if, if capital only made things that lasted 100 years, it would have been dead long ago. So it's really come up with a strategy and started to do this in the 1930s of planned obsolescence. But the planned obsolescence has got shorter and shorter and shorter. So we're now actually in a situation where the turnover time of consumption is becoming faster and faster and faster. Look at what happens with the electronics. How many gadgets have you possessed over the last 10 years, you know? And how many times have you been told, get rid of that old phone, you've got to have this new one, you know, with the new apps and all that kind of stuff. I mean, this is the, this is the world we're in, and, and actually capitalists move more and more to the production of, 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 uh, of, of commodities which have rapid turnover times, which are ephemeral. And, uh, and in fact, the, the, the production of... Um, of, of, of new, new ways of thinking even then become significant. So we have actually people wanting to talk about, we're in a new stage of capitalism called cognitive capitalism. I don't believe it at all, but uh, on the other hand, I mean, when is capital ne not being cognitive? I mean, I, this is one of the issues. But, but, but nevertheless, there's something there uh, which, is, which is very significant, which is the way in which capital is seeking out w modes of consumption which have almost instantaneous turnover times, which includes, of course, spectacle. Now, spectacle has a great thing, which is it, it's an instantaneous turnover. The only reason I don't like to call it immaterial because the amount of material activity that goes into the creation of the spectacle is huge and the mobilization that goes on. And you can see actually this competition over, over it. I mean, uh, the, the, my favorite example here would just, just go back and, and look at the opening ceremonies of Olympic Games. It's a very good example. And by the way, how many places have gone bankrupt after they've uh, staged Olympic Games, including, of course, Greece. But this is a... This is, this is, if you like, the part of the dynamic that, 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 that we are in. And this is leading, to me, to, to, to all sorts of, of dangerous situations. And I want to make the proposition, and I try to make the proposition in the book, that, that compound growth cannot last, and we therefore have to find alternatives. And we have to find alternatives to move towards a steady-state economy. Now, when you say that, people kind of say, well, you're anti-growth. No, I mean, I'm anti-growth in the sense that the aggregate economy has to, of global economy has to grow. I'm very much in favor of growth in certain parts of the world with cert, for certain reasons. And I'm in favor of degrowth in other parts of the world. And this is something we need to actually look, look, look towards. Because that also connects with the other contradiction, which is a serious one, which is the environmental one, uh, which uh, where there are, it seems to me, again, a whole bunch of issues which are very difficult and dangerous. And I'm not simply talking about being apocalyptic about global warming because I'm not apocalyptic about that at all, but I think that the, uh, the degradation of, of, of many physical environments, ecological systems is, is a very serious, uh, very serious issue. And again, you think about compound growth in relationship to all of that, then, then you've got some very serious uh, issues that need, need to be addressed. What this leads to, however, is then for me, is the big question. What uh, how are we going to get to some alternative? And what should it be about? I've already argued that if you go through all the contradictions, you'll end up with, well, we don't want one that's based all on, on exchange value. We want one that's really based primarily on, on use value. We don't want one where production is forcing realization. We want one where realization is actually forcing production and, and, and so on. So we can come up with a politics of this kind by going through the different uh, contradictions. But then the question arises, why would anybody go for this politics? Because I think capital can survive its own contradictions, but it can do so at a cost, 
at a cost to human beings, at a cost to the environment, at a cost, and that cost is increasing and is becoming more and more viable. So I argue in the final part that actually one of the things we're looking at is a situation of universal alienation. And I want to bring back the question of alienation to the center of the analysis. That there is a sense in which capital is taking us in a direction where it seems inhumane. It's not going where we might want it to go. And therefore, collectively and consciously, we can actually decide to take it in a different direction. We are evolutionary agents. Human beings have always been evolutionary agents, and they've done some incredibly wonderful and marvelous things, even under capitalism. But we have to do some incredible, wonderful, and marvelous things in a way that goes beyond or outside of capitalism. And we have to start to think about it. We have to start to work at it. And one of the things that outrages me about the way universities are headed and the way think tanks are headed is they are simply about deepening where we're at, deepening where we are. They're not about actually having a free discussion about alternatives. And that free discussion about alternatives is something that has to be consciously developed. And we have to actually get together and start to talk about what these issues might mean and how we might do it. I don't have solutions to a lot of these problems. I have some general ideas about how to frame the debate and discussion. And we can talk about that and many people will have other ideas. But this is something that has to, is going to take a collective a real collective mobilization of you know, what Marx called the general intellect if we're going to actually get anywhere with it. And this is, to me, one of the big missions that it seems to me uh, has to come out of the situation that we currently are. Right now, there are no answers being offered to the dilemmas which face us. There are no answers to the contradictions which capital poses. And therefore, we have to start to find those answers and one of the ways, of course, is to do that is to come to terms with what the nature of those contradictions are. And that is what I was trying to work on in the book. I don't know whether I got them all, and there'll probably be plenty more to come. But anyway, I'll hope you take a look at it. Thanks very much. We have time for some questions, we I think. We do, indeed. Now, um, we have people with microphones uh, uh, who will be travelling to you to uh, get your questions. So uh, uh, if, uh, if I pick you out, uh, uh, once we get going, uh, please wait till the microphone gets to you. Tell us who you are. People often forget to do this unless you really, really don't want to. It's just useful. Uh, and thirdly, try to ask a question. Um, please, we'll get more questions in if we don't stay positions or, or talk for, for, for a long time. So nice, short as you can, uh, 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 questions. Okay, so let's have a go. So, uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor Harvey. Um, a very quick question. Uh, thinking of the problems of compound growth, what do you think of the New Economics Foundation 21 Hours Week? The, <laughs> uh, the New Economic Foundation have put forward the idea of everyone working 21 hours, sharing out the work we have in the context of a kind of a slow or no-growth economy. 
Yeah, take, 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 take them. All right. So who else had their hands up? Uh, this lady up there. That. Anybody else? Thank you. Um, my name's Shaka, and I uh, just wanted to ask what you thought um, about money as a representation of trust between, um, between people and, and within social relations. All right, so that's an interesting one about money and trust. Uh, there's a question at the front here. Anyone at the top? All right, I'll, I'll come over to you uh, presently. Yes, hi. I'm an alumna and also from Occupy London. And um, because I'm from Occupy London, and it's now two and a half years later and we seem totally invisible, I guess, and what I think about more than anything now is the fact that we're so... um, uh, You know, it relates a bit slightly to what other people have said, but there's certainly the issue of trust and who we can trust and all the rest of it when we're organising... And so it's led me to believe that we absolutely, and I think you alluded to this, Professor Harvey, that we absolutely must um, actually engage with the very people that we think have created the crisis in quite a substantial way. And I wondered what you thought about that. Uh, Yeah, okay. Um, The 21-hour week, yeah, I mean... Uh, we are in a situation right now where part of the dynamics of technological change, and I deal with this uh, in the book, are actually rendering uh, many of the labor processes which are going on around us uh, redundant. Um, I mean, I guess even The Economist has kind of argued that uh, about 50% of the service jobs is likely to disappear. Uh, And I think uh, the left has to be very careful not to try to defend jobs which are going to disappear. I mean, we tried to do that with the manufacturing sector and didn't succeed. Uh, The same thing is likely to happen to the service sector. Uh, It would be very... uh, It's it's perfectly feasible right now that you could do away with uh, certain categories of employment, like airline pilot. You could actually... Uh, you could actually send jumbo jets across the Atlantic uh, electronically right now. If you really wanted to, people would be maybe scared about it, but uh, given, given what happened to the Malaysian flight recently, they might actually feel more uh, safer with an electronic... But, uh, but uh, yeah, so, so there's a lot going on there, and then the question of, 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 of work sharing and how, how, how to preserve income structures... Uh, in a population uh, where where most of the jobs are disappearing, uh, even in even in the service sector, that's you know can it be done with work sharing or should it be done some other way? Uh, some people are arguing that we should have a guaranteed uh, income uh, and various other solutions of that kind. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not going to get into any any of those. The question of uh, money and trust. I think uh, right now uh, this comes back to what what I see as uh, what I call universal alienation, that is a feeling that you can't trust anybody. And, and of course, one of the the issues uh, arises that that money is supposed to, you know, things are supposed to be as safe as, as the Bank of England or something of that kind, but the Bank of England isn't particularly safe. 
Uh, and it used to be people would say things are safe as houses, and they're not safe either financially. So I think that uh, the, the, the whole kind of question of, uh, uh, of breakdown of trust is, is at this moment uh, a uh, part, part of what I would consider uh, uh, widespread, wide, widespread alienation uh, in relationship to the political system, in relationship to work processes, and in, in, in relationship to consumption as well. So, so this is, a, you know, again, something that I, I, I try to deal with a little bit, but again, it's, uh, I, uh, without getting into a sort of whole lecture about it, I would, I would argue that the loss of trust is something that has to be uh, compensated for um, by, again, uh, the development of, sort of political bonds and political movements. And, and uh, part of the, those political bonds and political movements have to be put together uh, in, in such a way that I agree with you entirely that we, you just cannot afford, we cannot afford to imagine that, that there is a group over there called them who are the enemy and somehow or other we are the good people that in some, some way there has to be some negotiation the bringing into uh, a political process of many of those people who are um, uh, actually significant in relationship uh, uh, to, to particularly uh, economic power as it currently exists. The problem I think however is that the Billionaires Club is showing itself uh, to be uh, particularly short on empathy with anybody other than itself uh, that it does to the degree that it does anything it's what uh, this guy Peter Buffett who's the son of Warren Buffett who has this foundation called uh, Philanthropic Colonialism and, and uh, is actually into conscience laundering rather than actually solving any problems. So I think that, uh, again, there has to be a critical engagement, but it must be a fiercely critical engagement uh, of uh, those people who are attempting uh, to do good. And, and I think uh, this extends uh, to, the, to the way in which uh, the welfare state uh, globally uh, is essentially replaced these days by NGOs, and there will be no revolution by NGO, that I can uh, assure you even though there are some very good people within the NGOs who would like to see a revolutionary transformation. Because the NGOs are structured in such a way as to, you know, their financing and all the rest of it is set up in such a way uh, that they are, uh, in the end, counterproductive in terms of their institutional form. So if we want to define a new way of doing politics, it cannot be through the NGO industrial co complex. It has to be uh, through some other, other, other form. Now, what form that can take... Uh, it seems to me to be something that has, is emergent, not, uh, not, not, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a good organizer myself. I have a hard enough time organizing myself as opposed to organizing anybody else. So that I think that, uh, that, 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 that again, the question of trust and, and how to build trust and how to build a political process is something that is uh, very much an open, open question. But it is an open question, and I think there are a lot of people who are really concerned about it. I mean, I meet people concerned about it all of the time and who are trying to put their thinking caps on to say, you know, well, we should, we should really try to get this to, together in a, di a radically different way from the way in which we've tried to do it in the past. All right. There are, there are three questions uh, 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 over here in the superstructures. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. 
Hi, um, I'm Eva Kowalski from the School of Oriental and African Studies, and I was wondering whether you could elaborate a bit more on how volume three of Capital um, fits into your analysis in terms of you know the financial sector, and that's also where Marx deals with um, credit, because that seems to be a major, major cause of crisis nowadays. Thank you. All right, question about volume three. Whew. Yes. <laughs> it's all right, we've got 20 minutes. Uh, hi, I'm Ramin, a member of public. Is China heading towards a crisis? <laughs> the future of China. <laughs> and maybe one more for now. Taking the thinking cap on and looking at the model of global academies learning, uh, intellectual and devious, development, um, politics, education. Um, going back then to the root of your analysis, this little group of three fugitives, uh, two fugitives and one half fugitive who had a factory, Engels, uh, in Manchester, supporting each other, but one was an aristocrat uh, with extraordinary uh, long-range knowledge of political directions and peacemaking in Europe. Uh, so uh, her ancestors uh, helped to uh, do the Vienna Venice Congress, the, the, the peace. Uh, now, isn't there then time that we, uh, when we want to create a new model to help to ensure uh, the trust question and the contradiction questions, uh, that we perhaps start forming uh, little um, revolutionary outfits which have gone through Holocaust uh, similar situations, like, uh, say, for instance, liberation of, of, uh, of Warsaw uh, ghetto, uh, which is extraordinary, that history, if you compare it with our economics in the moment with the... Uh, uh, high-frequency trading, more or less same story. Uh, the only thing, it's not visible, it's not represented. Now, uh, wouldn't there be, with other words, the need to create academic models in which small groups of utterly repressed academics, but who show some talent, would be mixed exactly with high-experienced, um, um, uh, say, aristocratic or, or government knowledge, and trying to help now really phrase uh, uh, model suggestions in which way we should go about. Because uh, if we endlessly say, okay, we wait for the academic sector to do the job for us, we can wait, uh, you know, with the same uh, we, we just uh, wait uh, until the next big crisis. Uh, Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> right. Well, uh, the, 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 answer to the, the answer to the last question is yes. <laughs> uh, China, China um, you know, uh, it, it's a gamble. It's a gamble. Uh, I, I'm I'm uh, struck by many of the signs of uh, overproduction. There are many rumours of uh, plenty of uh, uh, 
problems in the in the credit structures and the the, the like that uh, in fact uh, China is doing pretty much in the housing market there what was done in the United States in 2000 uh, but China is actually doing in many ways what the United States did after World War II two which is uh, suburbanize and urbanize and uh, at a fantastic uh, kind of rate and which is propping up most of the world's economy i mean china consumes half of the world's cement supplies half of the world's uh, steel supplies so it's a very uh, it's a very dynamic situation but uh, a very perilous one and most people i read on it are kind of some people say well it's headed for a crash and some people say no because uh, they have a lot of surplus uh, available to themselves so they can recapitalize. They've got their foreign exchange surplus. They can recapitalize their banks and they can recapitalize their system in ways that uh, uh, most, other part, most other countries could not. So I don't know about the China case. I'm, I'm, I'm very nervous uh, about its uh, continuity. Uh, I can tell you this, that if the China experiment blows up or comes to a crash, then the world capital will be in very, very, very serious trouble. And you see this in the stock markets uh, because as soon as there's some sort of suggestion that there's something wrong in the Chinese manufacturing sector, the stock markets go down. And so there's a great sensitivity to, uh, to the data coming out of China. And, of course, this comes back to the former question, can you trust the data coming out of China? And the answer like most other economic data, is you can't trust much of it at all. Um, so it's a, it's a toss-up. Now, Volume 3 of Capital, um, actually what I did in the companion to Volume 2 was to take all of the chapters on finance, merchant capital, uh, from Volume 3 and insert them into the context of Volume 2 because Volume 2 is incredibly annoying in the following sense, that you keep on coming across issues like differentials and turnover time, like fixed capital formation and circulation, like the whole problem of coordination of different sectors of the economy between production and means of production versus means of consumption, all of which Marx keeps on saying, well, this all looks very, very different if you introduce the credit system, but we are not prepared to do that here, he says in volume two. And it becomes clear that, however, if you did not have the credit system, and this is one of the conclusions you reach uh, coming out of Volume 2, if you did not have the credit system, then capital would have to hoard so much money and so much of the, of, of, of the wealth that it would actually grind to a halt. In other words, more and more would have to be held in reserve to deal with the replacement of fixed capital, to deal with the replacement of that. And so hoarding is something which Marx talks about in Volume 2, but you see the volume of it escalating higher and higher and higher, becoming bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, depending upon the greater the dependency upon fixed capital formation. And if fixed capital formation is increasing, which it always does with growth, then fixed capital becomes a big, big category that cannot be dealt with outside of the existence of a credit system, which allows surpluses from here to be used to, to invest in fixed capital there. So, so uh, what I decided to do was to introduce all of the stuff about the credit system into to sort of say, well, only through this system can you answer some of the questions which Marx is leaving open in, in, in volume two. So there is a relationship between volume 
uh, volume two and volume three, but the, the relationship is, uh, I think, uh, very strong. Where what, what, what comes out of the analysis of the credit system is, in fact, uh, some pretty, pretty fantastic uh, stuff. Uh, and and uh, I, I love uh, Marx's uh, analysis of the crisis of 1847-48 in which what he calls uh, the uh, mistaken Bank Act of 1844 played a crucial role in prolonging and deepening the crisis. And when you look at it, this is a dead ringer for the European Central Bank whose formation and its configuration has played a very central role in prolonging and deepening the crisis. And, and Marx's analysis of the Bank of England's charter, which was reformed in 1844, is a very interesting way of, of looking at what, what, you know, some of the institutional responses. I also find it very, very interesting that the two crises that Marx analyzed in, in Capital are the crisis of 1847-48 and 1857-58. And both, in both of these instances, Marx called them primarily commercial and financial crises. And he didn't mention the falling rate of profit once which is very interesting to those people who right now are kind of trying to understand recent crises in relationship to the particular theory of the falling rate of profit. I'm not going to get into too big, deep arguments about that, but uh, as you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, this is where, where you know, Marxists like to form circular firing squads and, and get after each other, you know, with what their position is on crisis theory and all the rest of it. But it is interesting, I think, that Marx, in those, in those passages... In volume three, where he's analyzing uh, the actual crises of 1847-48 and 1857-58, analyzes them in a way in which financial issues and credit issues and commercial issues are actually become to the fore. And it would seem to me that uh, if you know, we should we should be prepared at least to to contemplate the possibility uh, that that we should be doing the same sort of thing in relationship to what happened in 2007, 2008 and what its relationship might be to some of the deeper underlying issues uh, which arise out of the contradictions of capital is, is uh, another, uh, another question. But the, the volume three analysis is, as you know, broken into two parts. One is the continuation of the general argument, uh, which culminates, if you like, in the falling rate of profit theory, and then the rest is about the theory of distribution. And the theory of distribution has a completely different, uh, has a completely different uh, tone to it and a completely different dimension to it. And it, of course, challenges some of the findings of Volume 1 and of Volume 2 because the theory of distribution is not a passive element in the dynamics of capitalism in the terms of rent extractions and so on. And this is one of the arguments I make in, in, in the Contradictions book. We are much closer now to forming a rentier economy in which rents and the appropriation of rents is becoming uh, absolutely central to what capital is about. And this is kind of interesting because Keynes looked forward to the euthanasia of the rentier. And of course, if you followed Keynesian policies, that's where you would very much end up. But since we've had this other kind of uh, capital which has been emerging since the 1970s, actually we've got the reconstruction of the rentier. And the rentier is now constituted not only by the rentiers of finance capital, because interest can be seen as a form of rentierism. It's also based on land and property markets, and tremendous – everywhere you go in the world, land and property markets are becoming crucial, most of all in China, where everybody – if there is going to be a blow-up in China, it's probably likely to be in property markets. So – so the rentier is becoming significant, but the rentier is also becoming very significant in intellectual property rights. 
So suddenly you find yourself in a situation where some heads of American corporations say, we don't need to produce anything anymore. All we do is produce the knowledge and then actually sit there as a rentier. And if you're not a rentier uh, on the knowledge, you're just a rentier by forcing monopoly. So you have this, these rentiers uh, emerging, uh, like in agribusness, Monsanto, Cargill, and the, mo the monopoly power over, over seed plasma and all the rest of it, which, which is extraction of monopoly rents. So the category of monopoly rent has become very much more significant. And again, you can't get to that without going to the volume three. I mean, it's odd, it really is odd in Marx's capital that you go through the whole of volume one and the role of the landlord is not there at all, and the land of rent, not there. You go through volume two, it's not there. The first part of volume three, it's not there. Volume three, suddenly rent comes back in. And then right at the end of the little fragment on rent, Marx says the three big classes in society, that is, industrial, uh, the industrial bourgeoisie, the landlords, and the, and the workers. And then you say, well, where are the landlords in this whole analysis in, in three volumes of capital? What were they doing? And, and why are they handled in the way they are in the, in the segments on rent? Uh, so this is, to me, uh, again, very important to, start, to get a global view of what it was that Marx was trying to do in capital and why he was doing the things he was doing in the way he was. And I think it's only through that perspective we can have a judgment as to whether Marx is making any sense in relationship to contemporary situations. Clearly, if we want to understand the central current situation, we can't do that without looking at land and property prices and everything that's happening in that. And we can't do it without looking at intellectual property rights. And this is all about what the, what's the role of rent in a capitalist economy. And it may well be, and this is another interesting kind of thing which will get people outraged when I say it, which is that actually Ricardo had a theory of the end of capitalism, and it was because of the excessive power of the rentier. Marx didn't like that theory, so Marx constructed the falling rate of profit theory to get rid of the Malthusian base of, of, of Ricardo's falling rate of profit theory. But maybe we're back in a Ricardian situation where the overwhelming power of the rentier is going to squeeze out productive capital, even, even uh, uh, merchant capital. But if you look at the powerful sources that right now, where the income streams are coming from, a lot of it is coming from merchant capital. You know, who are, who are, the, who are the richest people in the world right now? No longer the heads of General Motors and all that kind of thing. It's people in Walmart and it's people in, uh, you know, the, 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 those kinds of organizations. And it's, of course, people also in the communicative activities as well. So we have, a, we have a different kind of scenario in which the power of the rentier is absolutely, absolutely vital to come to terms with. And that's one of the issues they do take up at the book at some considerable length. All right. Well, there, there was a question up here. Perhaps we'll take that first. Then there were a couple of people here... You and somebody else, was that? No, and you. Uh, and we'll, hopefully, you've had your hand up, but hopefully we'll get to you after that because we don't want to ask too many questions at once, but we do have limited time, so that, okay. that might be it. Okay, hi. Um, I'm reading um, this book at the moment, actually, um, and I wondered if you could expand a little bit on um, the contradiction between the state and private property and why exactly it's a fundamental contradiction because um, I didn't quite understand when I was reading it. Is it because private property is predicated on the basis of the freedom of the individual, which the state has the power to and often does take away? Um, yeah, if you could elaborate a little bit on that, that would be really good. And I wanted to say that I very much um, agreed with you that we need to begin um, posing political alternatives 
Um, and on that note, I'd like to draw everyone's attention to a festival that's taking place this summer called Marxism 2014. Um, it's alternatives for a world in crisis. It's the biggest left-wing festival in Europe. We'll have revolutionaries from Syria, Lebanon and Egypt. Um, there's loads of meetings. It aims to draw people into discussion, All also right. into action um, on issues. And that I'd sounds like, very exciting, but we we'll want I'd like to, our, to be able to answer And I'd like questions. to ask David if he plans to come and speak it like he did two years ago. So, and if you'd like to book, grab a leaflet off me in the lobby. Thanks. All right. Okay, thank you. Um, right, so you? Um, hello, I'm a graduate student at King's College across the road. Um, All right. um, my question is to do with uh, uh, the perception of uh, how humans interact in a system. So the, traditionally, there's been always uh, a tendency to defend capitalism by saying that uh, human beings rationally act in a way. But uh, in the recent 20 years or so, uh, the field of experimental economics uh, and behavioral economics have sh sort of shown there's so many studies that show that human beings don't necessarily um, act that way. Uh, so given the fact that uh, these studies have been published in very uh, well-known journals across um, North America recently in very liberal schools, uh, how, um, would you say that academia doesn't have uh, uh, the power to change things? All right. Um, hi, I'm from the group Kritistikavs. Um, we are busy with um, critiquing capital um, as it works in the society. I do very much agree that there are a lot of contradictions that come with capital, but I beg to differ on that they don't work out. Just to give a quick example is that the contradiction between the use value and the exchange value is so cruelly demonstrated by the 30,000 people that die each day because they don't have access to the use value of food, which yeah. is available, because they don't have any exchange value to hand out. But what does that mean? It means, can you still hear me? Um, that uh, uh, this is something that happens daily and it works out perfectly for capital. So... Um, I think that illustrates that not capital is going some wrong way, but capital, if you want to put it that way, is inherently inhumane. And if you want to change something about that, about those starving people, you would need to end the capital as the aim of the whole economy and not change uh, whether production or realization is more important and, who dri and what drives what, but end the realization of any value. Can you bring a question? Exactly. That, the question, um, one more hint, is whoever wants to have like, more details about that information, we handed out a brochure. And the question is, what do you think about that? All right, there was this gentleman at the front here. This is a, a question on inflation. Over the last, uh, since 2008, the uh, World Banks have been throwing money into the stock markets in bonds, creating massive amounts of wealth. And they still manage to control inflation, which is one of the surprising things over the last few years and how, in effect, that they have managed to bring inflation down. Why is that when they're throwing so much money into the markets? All right, and one last question uh, from the person with the green stripy thing uh, uh, there. Hello, my name is Ilma, and I'm a support worker in a homeless hostel and squatting in East London. I just want to ask you, uh, what do you think about squatting as a means to reclaim surplus in housing? All right, excellent, admirably concise question. <laughs> All right. 
Yeah, um, on uh, private property and the, the state, um, the thing is that you can't have exchange going on unless uh, there are juridical individuals who do the exchanging. And juridical individuals implies that there's a structure of law and, and contract of some kind. And that structure of law and contract defines both their right to have a, a, a complete control over that commodity which they are disposing of, including, of course, their own labor power in situations where workers become uh, part of the commodification. Uh, and, and that juridical relation has to be stabilized, and that's where the state, some form of state power enters, enters in. So the, the dynamic uh, between the, 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 the importance of having juridical individuals uh, who can engage in, 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 in trade and have complete control over the commodity which they trade and, and complete uh, disposal, capacity to dispose of it. And, of course, juridical individuals doesn't mean necessarily individuals like you and I, it also means corporations right now because they're you know, defined as juridical uh, individuals. So you need that 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 that, that uh, uh, set up in order for the exchange value system to work, in order for money to be to have the cap the, the qualities that it does. Um, I think that. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the question of uh, the introduction of, uh, uh, of, of all kinds of other ways of thinking about uh, economic activity and economic rationality, fortunately the system of economic rationality has been under uh, fire, I think, for some time. And I, I have to say, uh, the place where you see this most clearly is in the work of Keynes, I mean, it's, it's, if you care to read the general theory, which is a fantastic book in many ways, about, you know, two-thirds of it is about psychology, and only about one-third is about the actual economic theory. And, of course, the economic textbooks give you the economic theory and leave the psychology uh, behind. In fact, uh, once around a seminar in which we taught Keynes and Gramsci, and, and I think it was a very, very interesting kind of connection. Uh, because uh, Keynes is very much talking about the necessity to construct hegemony of a certain sort and, and gain consent. Uh, and therefore, a lot of this uh, experimentation that's been going on in that boundary between economics and psychology is very much about uh, the, uh, how, to, how to maintain and sustain uh, uh, consent uh, in a society where we're beginning to see the, the, the worrying signs of what I call universal alienation uh, emerging and an attempt, to, it seems to me, to, to sort of mobilize. Uh, and it's, it's no accident that uh, in recent times some of the uh, Nobel Prizes in economics, which are not really Nobel Prizes, but they've been given to people with a psychological bent rather than uh, who are sort of just doing the technical sort of number number crunching. So I think that uh, there is a, 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 has been an evolution in, in thinking uh, in which many of these elements are put, are put together in a, in a different way. Uh, and, you know, I'm not arguing, I'm not arguing that, uh, the, that uh, academia is not inventive. It's the question of what it's inventive about. Uh, I think a lot of work that's gone on in academia, particularly around, uh, you know, questions of race and gender and uh, uh, gay, lesbian rights and those kinds of questions, are very, have been very, very uh, transformative. 
And so it's not as if the society, our society has been, if you like, uh, stuck in, in, in the rut on, on, on everything. It's become much more open to multiculturalism. It's become much more open on many things. And, and therefore, this is, if you like, the, a progressive side. But the thing that's interesting to me is that when I'm talking about a ba basic um, political economic formation and the nature of the, contradi the contradictions of capital, it's there that there's absolutely almost silence about what an alternative might look like because I don't think there is one to be defined. Um, I agree entirely about the fact that the, the exchange use value system is constantly... Uh, depriving uh, large segments of the population of, of, of use values. When I said that things compensate each other, I was talking about a general crisis of the system. And it's a crisis always from the standpoint of capital. As Marx pointed out, uh, capital is really about a permanent crisis for the working class and, and much of the working class. And therefore, you know, from that perspective, from a class perspective, you would say that the use value, exchange value distinction is something that should be abolished and exchange value should be abolished as, in fact, Marx argued should be the case. In fact, that was, you know, one of his... Uh, nostrums at that uh, we should look forward to a society which was just simply about use values with exchange value playing absolutely no role whatsoever. So I agree with you entirely that uh, the, the system does not compensate in the sense that it works well for everybody, but it, does it actually contribute to the, the reproduction of capital? And the answer is yes. A crisis is by, largely defined in our society by the inability of capital to reproduce itself. And it's, so it's the reproduction of capital and its failure, which is the defining moment of crisis. A inflation. It's not actually true that inflation is not with us. I mean, it depends which part of the world you're in. China has been actually bogged down in inflationary pressures. Uh, Argentina, uh, Brazil, Latin America have a strong inflationary pressures. So it depends where you are. And, and uh, there's been a lot of inflation uh, in, in various prices. So even though you can kind of say the measures of inflation are down, there's a tremendous inflation of housing prices and the tremendous inflation in, 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 in rents, for example. Uh, so, so this, this uh, you know, we have to be careful about using the statistical data of which, say, inflation is very low. What, what is really meant by that is that the working class and, and labor has been so disciplined that it's unable uh, to actually jack up its, um, uh, its wage rate uh, effectively. And it's the repressive, uh, it's a repression of the wage rate and, and the declining share of wages in national income, which is, I think, the, the significant element that means there's no inflation coming from that quarter and that, therefore, in the United States, the inflation rate is low and, therefore, in Europe, the inflation rate is, is, is low uh, and in Japan, the inflation rate is low. So this is, to me, if you like, the, 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 the crucial question about uh, inflation. Um, Squatting? Yeah, I think squatting is a great idea. Uh, let's, uh, you, know, you know, we could squat all kinds of things. I mean, in fact, uh, uh, I was taken around the, the, the street in London, which is apparently notorious now for the fact that nobody lives on it, even though it's full of, you know, the affluent mansions. Uh, most of the very, very large new uh, mansions in, in the condominiums in New York City are empty. And, and you live in a world which is kind of crazy when you think of it, that you have all of these empty... empty and, and I was in Istanbul last week, and I was told there's something like 600,000 empty rooms or empty, empty apartments or empty dwellings in, 
in, in Istanbul. I mean, this, this, and this is a boom town in terms of building. They're keeping on building. And they're building empty buildings so that people can speculate on the value of the building and all this kind of stuff. So again, there's incredible inflationary pressure. Uh, increasingly, most, most people find it very difficult to live near the center of London or live, near the center, you know, live on Manhattan or, or, or any of these places. And wherever you go, and this is not just simply just a few places, wherever you go, there's tremendous kind of inflation going on uh, in the value of empty buildings. And you kind of go, what kind of use value is that? And you, then you kind of say, well, we should squat them. And in fact, you know, we, we had this little plan. There's a great new condominium down in near Wall Street that has gold-tiled bathrooms. And we all thought to ourselves, we'd like to go take a shit there. And, <laughs> you know, and uh, so, but obviously, you know, these are highly protected uh, spaces, as you can imagine. But, I mean, this is, this is, the, you know, this is the total irrationality of the system. And you look at it and you kind of go, why are we tolerating such incredibly irrational practices as building like crazy to keep places empty so people can't get into them? I mean, that is the exchange value and use value system which has gone completely berserk. And we should do something about it. All right. Well, that will have to do because we're five minutes uh, uh, over. Uh, uh, but we've learned a lot there, I think. Thank you, David.